Good afternoon, this is Quintus Curtius. Welcome back to the podcast. And in this podcast, we'll be talking about a question I received on my blog. The question was phrased in the form of a comment on my blog on a recent article that I posted there. And this was an article on digitization of books and censorship. And I posted the article on May 8th. So if you go to my blog, qcurtius.com, you can find the article there on May 8th. And this reader left a very long comment, and it has some very, very good questions in it. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And for those who don't have computer access right at this second, I'll read off the question, and then we'll talk a little bit about the answers or my responses to the question. And this is by commenter J. Vince. That's his name anyway that he uses. He says, This is going to be a kind of a one-off question topically, but I value what input you might have. I am a Latin teacher with military experience and have recently encountered a student who is committed to the ideology of fascism. This is a new one on me, having until now encountered mainly various modes of leftist ideology, whether in university or at secondary schools. I suppose my direct question is, how does a constitutionalist, such as I am, who holds the same inalienable rights, such as the founders expressed in the Declaration to be true and unequivocal, get a teenage fascist ideologue to see the error of tyranny as a viable form of governance? As I understand it, this teenager believes his fascist outlook can be a remedy to the preponderance of left-wing social constructionist views that are saturating our media and working their way into our legal system. I'm assuming he does not put any trust in the framers' system of checks and balances, and therefore would rather rely on a dictatorial tyrant to silence opposition violently in order to maintain strong national culture. That's the first part of his question. It goes on, and I'll deal with the second part of it. But for now, let's deal with that. That's the question. That's the comment. Or that's the beginning of the comment. So essentially what he's asking is, how does he respond to a teenager, a young man, who apparently believes in fascist ideology and everything that goes with that, How do I respond, he's asking. What do I do? How do I respond? Well, first off, let me just say a couple things. The first off, don't overreact about something like this, okay? This is not anything to get uh, all of our panties in a bunch about, all right? When you've got someone who's a teenager, it's very normal for teenagers, especially inquisitive, intelligent ones, to experiment with different thought systems and ideologies and to kind of masticate and chew over these different systems of governance in their minds. Because this is what young and inquisitive minds do. And in some ways, we want to encourage people to read about different things and to explore different things. And usually most intelligent people grow out of ideologies or grow out grow out of negative or bad things as they get older, as they get more exposed to the world, and as they get more exposed to how life really works in the real world, rather than just in books. 
So my point is, don't don't beat up on this guy too much, okay? Don't read into this too much. If this is just some teenager just trying to debate you, it could very well be just a guy who is just curious, inquisitive, probing, an intense type of individual who's searching for answers to the ills that he sees around him, that we all see around us in our modern society. Okay, so that's, my, I guess, my first point. The, I think as teachers, uh, we have responsibilities to stimulate and encourage students to think for themselves, but also at the same time, not to just accept, of course, challenges like that without giving some sort of response. Okay, so, you know, it's on the one hand, I think you need to ease up and and kind of relax a little bit. But on the other hand, I think something that's troubling you, and I detect this in the in the email in the question, is that you're having a hard time responding. You're having a hard time coming up with responses to this guy, because deep down, deep down, there's something about his position that bothers you. There's something about his ideas that 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 unnerves you a little bit. And I think maybe in, you're getting to the point where, geez, you know, things are so bad now. And there's so much disorder, there's so much lack of discipline, there's so much chaos that maybe this guy's right. Maybe we do need a strong uh, hand, at least for a short period of time, in order to restore order. Maybe we do need a way to crush all of these cultural depravities, degeneracies that we see around us. It's very tempting. It's very, very tempting, and I can understand why there's something about this guy's position that bothers you. But, but, I don't believe that totalitarian dictatorships are the answer. So, I agree with you. I I, I think this ideology is mistaken. It's never been a good cure for anything, really. And I think if you look at its track record, it's been a track record of unbroken failure. All right. Now, this is not to say that that a strong hand is not needed at certain times. Remember, we have to remember that personal freedoms and personal liberties vary inversely in proportion to the external threat faced. And when a country is faced by an external threat... Very often, a strong hand is needed to deal with that threat. I mean, even under the Roman Republic, there were, as you would know, as a Latin teacher, you would know that the Senate had a provision where it could appoint a dictator in times of emergencies to deal with crises. And there was also, in the late Republic, a a similar law where they could bestow a power, uh, nearly dictatorial powers, on a magistrate. And this happened during the... Catalinian conspiracy where the Senate gave Cicero essentially carte blanche to deal with the crisis. Okay, but you were expected that once the crisis was over that you would relinquish your power. Okay, so it's true that there have been times in history when a strong hand has been needed. But I think your question points to a, a deeper issue is that and this is something that I've noticed as well. 
We are, as a society, raising a whole generation of young people, men and women, who have no connection to, no loyalty to, no understanding of our constitutional system of government. And this is something that's very, very dangerous. If this kid is attracted by the seemingly seductive powers of fascist ideology, then obviously what that tells me is that his schools have not done enough to educate him and inform him about his own system of government. About his own system of government. And this is the problem with the educational system. In order to instill loyalty in in the citizenry, to a system. They have to be trained and educated in it. They have to have skin in the game. They have to have a stake in the outcome. And what we have right now is we have a population that's increasingly ignorant, increasingly uninformed, increasingly detached, increasingly alienated from the system of which they are a part. And when that happens, very, very dangerous things can happen. Because of all the different systems of government. The one that is the most difficult is democracy, is republican democracy. And this is because it requires a relatively high level of education and participatory input from the citizenry. You've got to participate. You've got to know what's going on. If you want to be a mindless sheep, if you want to be a, an animal, a pack whore, a pack mule, then you can see how much fun it is to live, un- to live under a dictatorship or a socialist system or a communist system. Have fun with that. Have fun with that. And so this is the big problem. The reason why many people in the United States today are, are alienated from the system and are attracted to different ideologies is because they have not been trained and educated in their own system. There used to be things, classes, called civics, where people would learn about how the government works, about how the checks and balances system work, and, or in theory are supposed to work. But most of that is gone now. People don't even know the basics anymore. If you had to ask the average person, he, wouldn't, he or she would not even know what the branches of government are. And in many ways, the United States system is heavily influenced by the Roman Republican system of government. And in my book, Sallust's Um, Conspiracy of Catiline and uh, War of Jugurtha, which is coming out here in early June, I have a special section devoted to the Roman Republic because people have asked me about that. They said, hey, look, can you give me a basic explanation of how the Roman system worked? Because I just don't know a lot of times what the references are. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And I included some special sections in the book just to give readers an understanding and a basic idea of what the structure is about that government. But this is the problem. People are being brought up today with no understanding of what goes on in their own government. So they have no skin in the game. They have no stake in the game. And so this is how they can be easily seduced by pernicious and alien ideologies that are not the best, that are not good, and that ultimately lead the country to ruin. And you know, if we look at most of human history, it's pretty clear. Let's talk a little bit about government. And I was going to say, when we look at human history, 
it's pretty clear that for most of history, the most common form of government has been some sort of oligarchy, some sort of oligarchy where there was a monarch in charge, governed by the elites. That's been the standard. Democracy is democracy in its modern sense is, is a very, very recent development. I mean, yes, in theory, there were democracies in the ancient world, but these were democracies hardly worth... Uh, uh, hardly worthy of the name. They were, in fact, voting rights were limited to a select few. Uh, they were not democracies in the modern sense. I mean, most most governments in, in world history have been essentially monarchies or oligarchies. And this is due to the very nature, human nature. People need to be governed by a firm hand, I think, in many situations. But on the other hand, there has to be respect for individual liberties, and, and fascist dictatorships do not respect individual liberties. They, they don't. That's not part of the, the game plan. And I think that's the first thing that we need to, uh, you know, to be aware of, you know, when we talk about, uh, when we talk about uh, governments. You know, and governments evolve and change over time. The Greek philosopher Plato, as many know, he proposed a cycle of governmental systems that took place over time. He thought that political institutions developed first as monarchies, aristocracies, democracies, and then dictatorships, and then that cycle would repeat itself. You know, dictatorship, monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, so on and so on. And that's true to some extent. That's true to some extent. So, again, you know, democracy, re Republican democracy has been a relatively recent invention in, in history. You know, the, the American system, the, the Anglo-American systems that developed are only several hundred years old. And it's not clear how long those will last. Because, as I said before, of all the systems of government, democracy is probably the most difficult to implement in practice because it requires a high level of education and participation by the citizenry. And there are dangerous signs, in my view, there are dangerous signs that democracy in America is under attack, is under severe attack. And I'll give you my reasons why I believe that. First off, the declining levels of education and informed uh, populations in America is a very, very negative sign. You know, the common masses have never been known for their erudition and understanding of nuanced issues. But, and I accept that, that's fine. But what we're seeing now is a, a, a level of, of of complete detachment and ignorance that I think is really new in American history. The, the, the media age, the mass media culture has created a whole, a whole generation or a whole class of people that are not only totally uninformed, but believe nonsense. They, they, they what they, the things that they think are important are not the things that are important, important in reality. And they're very easy to manipulate. They're very easily swayed. They're willing to believe the promises and the assurances of demagogues. 
And this goes hand in hand with the decline of educational levels, with the decline of the public school system. You have the rise of the mass man, the mass man, the mass media man who thinks he understands what's going on, but really marches to the tune of a drummer who is not someone who is providing informed uh, informed knowledge of the world. So this is the first very, very dangerous sign. The second dangerous sign that I believe democracy is, is under severe threat in America is the severe income disparities, the continuing and unrelenting concentration of wealth at the top. And I've talked about this many, many times before. I've given podcasts on the plutocratic insurgency, on the severe inequalities of wealth. And this is something that is only getting worse. Instead of reforming the system, instead of breaking up the monopolies, instead of redistributing the tremendous and and, and uh, uh, severely destabilizing income disparities, it's, it's getting worse. It's just getting worse. And so what you're going to have is you're going to have a very, very small minority at the top who control everything, everything, literally everything who don't want you even to have a band-aid. Not only, do they, not only do they not want you to have anything, but they want to rub your nose in it. And you've got the rest of the population, which basically has little or no net worth, has nothing, living from paycheck to paycheck, if they even have a job. And it's only getting worse. And this is not the prescription for a healthy democracy. Democracy cannot survive in these kinds of conditions. It cannot survive. It's just a fact. And what the media does is it, it succeeds in deflecting attention from all that and focusing attention on things that don't matter. And so this is how the population stays entertained, stays distracted, stays clueless, stays uninformed so that they can continue to be plundered and continue to be used as pack mules by the elites. And that's what that's what goes on. That's what happens. And I think, you know, this guy's student who's attracted to authoritarian ideologies, look, I understand I understand that. I mean, fascism provides a lot of attractions. You know, you get a lot of great parades and slogans and symbols and and parties and it all it all seems great. It all seems wonderful until it isn't. You know, I think your your buddy uh who thinks that fascism is so great, remind him show him the old films from the 1920s and 30s. 1920s and 30s in Italy. Everything was great in Italy in the 20s and 30s. Everything was wonderful. Everything was great. Il Duce was a lot of fun. He entertained. He was bombastic. He gave great speeches. He was a he was a, a a riot. He was a barrel of laughs, until he wasn't, until he wasn't, until you had a system where one guy made all the decisions and one guy could lead the country right over the fucking cliff. And this is what happened, and this is what happened in Germany. This is what happened in Japan. This is what happened in other countries. And the Soviet Union was not a fascist. It was it was a totalitarian system. It was a communist totalitarian system, but in many ways similar in the sense that you had one man making all the all the decisions. And look at look at what uh, look at what happened there. 
And everything was fun and games. Everything was great and parades and torchlight parades and songs and dances. And uh, until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. And just like a lot of the people who thought everything was going to be funsy-wunsy here in, in the United States, they're going to find out very quickly that there's consequences. There's consequences for supporting certain ideas, certain people. And those consequences are going to have to be, be paid. And they will be paid. Whether you want to or not. But that's a conversation for another day. Let's now read a little bit more of the rest of his question because he's a, it's a long comment here and there's some other things that he's asking in this comment. He says, um, he says, what first leaped to mind in speaking with him, this is his student who's attracted to fascism, was my experience with the Taliban in Afghanistan. While interrogating a belligerent Afghan, we asked him why he would support the Taliban in his town. He replied that they are one form of government and that we Americans were simply a different form. So why wouldn't he? They are already here. They are culturally the same as he is. They give him $2,000 an acre for poppies, growing poppies. When we, when we, want, to grow, we, we want him to grow wheat on the same land for $20 an acre. It was like trying to get someone to see an entire forest when all he sees or cares to see is one tree. How do you get someone to recognize the value of liberty as it has been realized in the West? Whether that person is Middle Eastern with no concept of such a boon, or whether he is a teenager who has lived only in freedom so that he does not recognize it in the very air that he breathes. I think that my experience with this type of argument is somewhat unique because I deal in the classics not in the merely current. But it is an argument I have not encountered before, because tyranny is obvious and repellent on its face. Perhaps he simply needs relevant experience to learn such a lesson, but even if he does, it's no guarantee that he will learn it before, as you suggest, the classics are altered to fit an ideology. Thank you for your time. Well, this is a very great question, and he brings up a very, very, very good point, as always. How do you convey to someone who doesn't appreciate the precious heritage that they've been given. How do you convey that to them? How do you tell someone who doesn't appreciate something to appreciate it? Well, the answer is you can't. You can only do so much. You can train, you can educate, you can try to enlighten people. But the sad truth is, many times in life, people don't appreciate something until it's lost. They won't appreciate something until they don't have it anymore. If there's one thing we learn from history, it's that people don't learn from history. Or at least, most people don't. Some do. Not all. And this Afghan that he's talking about, this guy who um, doesn't understand, yeah, okay, you, know, you, can get 20, you can get two grand for an acre, and, and I can understand that's a powerful incentive. But at the same time, you're living under, you're, you're, you're living under a... Uh, a primitive barbarism but you're never going to make headway trying to get some ignorant villager in afghanistan to understand that it's not going to work you're beating your head against the wall it's not going to work they're never going to understand because first off they're not intelligent enough to understand or at least not most of them are but these are societies that do not have long traditions of 
collective civic responsibility as part of their culture. It's not in the, it's not in the air. It's not in the ground. It's not in the, in the, the mountains. It's just not there. The culture is different. It's much more of an individualist. It's much more of a tribal, much more of a family-oriented culture. And you can change that to some extent. I'm not saying it's impossible. But there are so many other factors that you're having to contend with. I mean, this is a society that's dealt now with almost three decades of, of violence, disorder, chaos, war. You're never going to convince some tribesmen that he needs to just put the collective good ahead of his own family's good. He's going to look at you and say, hey, uh, sorry, but i got mouths to feed here. I've got kids to feed. In the same way, you're not going to tell some logger or miner in the Amazon to stop cutting down the trees, to stop clearing away the jungle because it's going to destroy the, the planet eventually. He doesn't want to hear that. He's going to say, hey, it's easy for you to say, but I've got mouths to feed. So... The only way you can change people people's minds like that is through a strong institutional structure of education. You've got to have institutions, you've got to have schools, you've got to have a spirit in the air where it's appreciated and understood. And this is what I keep going back to. You know, civilization is very very perishable. People take it for granted. They they take it for granted so much I can't even I can't even tell you. And if you ever watch, if you ever get a chance to watch the first episode, there was a great episode done by the BBC many years ago. It was back in the 70s. Kenneth Clark's Civilization series. He was a Cambridge Don who did a great series on civilization. And the first the first episode, I think, is something like By the Skin of Our Teeth, something like that he titled it. And basically he makes the point that after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, in the uh, 470s, 480s A.D., we were very close. Western culture was very, very close to being blotted out completely. Very close. You know, people don't understand that civilization needs to be nurtured. It needs to be promoted. It needs to be passed on. It needs to be disseminated for it to become part of the present culture of where it is. You have to inject it into the minds of the people. You have to impart it to the minds of the people. You can't just say, well, it's in the books and people can go look it up in the books. No, you've got to you've got to you've got to make it a reality for people. You've got to promote it in order for it to to sink in. And so this this commenter who wrote this comment, he's very troubled by that. I think he's very troubled. And I like how he relates what he's seeing here, you know, with his student who's attracted to fascism, and he relates that back to the ignorant villager in Afghanistan who won't listen to what my guy thinks is the bigger picture, you know. But, you know, the Afghan situation is maybe a little bit different. You know, this is a, you can't expect to impose your own value system on somebody in the middle of, of Central Asia. It's just not going to happen. You know, you can you can try. Uh, the only way Afghanistan is ever going to get itself uh, straightened out is if it gets strong central leadership again, where they can rebuild the infrastructure. And it's not going to look like a Western democracy. It's never going to look like that. But uh, you can make, something will happen. 
But my personal opinion is as long as we're there, nothing good is going to happen. We've just got to get out of there and just let them uh, deal with it themselves. Uh, it's just you can't, you can't, you know, culturally just transmit things that have no, no historical traditions in the area. But your student here, he should know better, or he 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 needs teachers and instructors who will rebut him, argue with him, rebut him, and and I think that's a perfect opportunity for you to uh, take the bull by the horns, to educate yourself on the system, and try to talk to this guy and say, look, you know, fascism might seem great and it might seem attractive up up for a time, but at the end. All it brings is misery. It's like trying to cure a headache by cutting off the head. That's what it is. If this guy sees, well, there's all these disorder and chaos and leftists, and and in in a lot of you know, he's right. There is, you know, there is a lot of social decay. We've talked about it here many times. In my view, uh, the moral destruction of the fabric of American life has been also a, a terrible, terrible consequence of the past forty years. Uh, it's been a it's been an, an unmitigated disaster, but you can't expect a governmental system to change that. It's got to come from the people. It's got to come from the people. The institutions have to be rebuilt. And this is why the only lasting revolutions are the revolutions of the spirit, the mind, of culture. These are the only things that really can change the way people behave. You know, putting a dictator on the throne is not going to change people. In fact, it's going to make things even worse. It would make things even worse. So those are some of my thoughts, and I hope it's been useful for you to think about these things. There's a lot to think about because these are, these are deep subjects. But government is a very difficult task. It's a very, very difficult task. I mean, the, the Roman Republic was rent and destroyed by decades of factionalism and civil war until... Uh, Octavian, later Caesar Augustus, uh, instituted a, an imperial system which, for better or for worse, provided an unbroken, an unbroken period of peace and stability for the Western world, the likes of which have never been seen before, that lasted from about, oh, from about, for about 200 years, from about, uh, you know, 20 AD up to 180 or, or 200 AD, and then things gradually kind of slipped away after that. But even in decline, Rome lasted longer than many states do in their entire lives. So this was an achievement of statesmanship that has never been equaled, never been equaled. So it behooves us to study these things and to ask ourselves, why? You know, why? Why is democracy better? than the other systems of government. And how do you nurture it? How do you promote it? And the reason why I think Republican democracies like we have, in theory, are the best of all the possible forms is because they generally provide the the most degree of freedom of thought, freedom of religion, freedom of economic opportunity, and freedom of education than any other system. And I, I base that view not just on my understanding of history, but also on my own travel experiences and my uh, experiences living in different countries. Now, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. 
does it require a lot of participation and does it require a lot of moving parts for it to work right? Yes, it does. But therein lies the challenge. Therein lies the challenge. And unless we solve these problems, unless we deal with the challenges that we face, we are headed in very, very, very dark directions. And people here are going to find out just what they had once they've lost it. And maybe that's what it's going to take. Maybe that is what it needs to happen for people to smarten up because there's only so much preaching you can do. All right. That will be enough for today. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.